You're listening to Youth Ministry Maverick, a podcast about mold-breaking methods to invest in the next generation of the church. Here's your host, Jeff Harding. What is happening, everyone? This is Jeff. Welcome back to Youth Ministry Maverick. You're listening to episode 13, The End of Youth Ministry. I guess I should have read that title uh, like Ron Burgundy because it ends in a question mark. Uh, But that is the name of Andy Root's newest book. And I promise I did not line up such an ominous title and topic with episode 13. It just happened that way. Uh, But Dr. Andrew Root is my guest for today's episode. He is the Kerry Olson Bailson Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. He has written numerous books, including Faith Formation in a Secular Age, The Pastor in a Secular Age, and Bonhoeffer as Youth Worker. If you have ever read Andy's works, uh, he has a very fun and engaging style. And I'm honored that he could join me on this episode. There have been several Bible scholars, theologians, and pastors in the last 10 to 15 years who have come out against youth ministry, even going so far as to say it's not biblical and has no grounds uh, for modern ministry in the church. That is not the point of Andy's book, Uh, He takes a philosophical and cultural journey through interviews with parents, with youth workers, with friends, to think about what youth ministry is really for. Why are we doing this? Um, Is it different than it was 20 years ago? Should it be different based on how culture uh, changes and parenting trends have developed and new ones have formed, what should it look like for us to invest in the next generation? So that's what we spend this time talking about. So let's hop into the interview with Andy. Andy, I'm so excited and honored for you to join me today. Uh, Thanks for uh, taking my gracious uh, invitation graciously to hop on. Uh, Before we dive into the book discussion, uh, could you catch us up on how things have been for you since the start of this COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, well, uh, this is, I don't know about you, Jeff, but this is my first global pandemic, so uh, it's a little little rocky, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. It's been... uh, it's been hard. I'll just, I'll just put it that way. It's been hard. I'm a, I'm a pretty severe introvert. So I thought like I was made for this and in some ways it has been good. Like I, I spent a lot of time alone and uh, uh, like being alone. Um, but I have, it's been realizing how much I need people and particularly how much I need to be like out in the church or at conferences and things like that. And mm-hmm. having all those canceled, has just been, it's been depressing. So it's been a little bit of like danger. I'm in my head too much. You know what I mean? Like I like being inside my head, but it's almost been too much. So uh, I was out in a congregation last week for the first time uh, in Kansas city. And uh, it was weird because we were all masks and, you know, social distancing, like, there right. was, you know, they only could have like 30 people there and they in a huge sanctuary, but uh, it was also so good to be with, with people. So yeah, I'm surviving, I guess. Is the best yeah. Way. 
Yeah, very cool. I am also a lot more introverted than I initially realized in life. And I have days where I'm like, oh, this is really enjoyable. And then days where it's like, I'm going crazy. So uh, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Um, Well, as I mentioned uh, in the intro, we'll be talking about Andy's latest book, The End of Youth Ministry, Why Parents Don't Really Care About Youth Groups and What Youth Workers Should Do About It. Uh, So I guess the first thing we should do is wrap up the podcast and go look for a different career. Um, (laughs) But uh, so spoiler and flattery alert, I really enjoyed the book. Uh, The structure of it is fascinating and it reminded me in a way of the television series Lost. Uh, The constant referral to and jumping between stories of interaction with friends, youth workers and parents all sitting in the context of your narration I think draws the reader in to discover things in a linear process that parallels your own as you kind of went through this process of figuring out what is youth ministry for. Um, So let's start the discussion with what led you to this search that outlines the book. Uh, One can safely assume by your title that thinking about and reacting to youth ministry trends is what you do for a living. Uh, However, your, your personal stories and narrated thoughts in the book suggests that this was quite a paradigm shift for you. Uh, So Andy, what led you to choose our most recent time to seek out the purpose of modern youth ministry? Uh, What were the triggers you experienced that served as the catalyst for this book? Yeah, that's a great question, man. Um, I didn't know a pandemic was coming and I didn't know like literally for people, youth ministry would end or go on zoom or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like just say youth ministry as uh, people were doing it. Um, would would end and so it is a very kind of clickbaity title you know and uh i didn't come up with the title the publisher did okay. but my contribution was to put the question mark there so i could keep all right keep people from being mad at me yes good strategy. <laughs> it's like is it ending ah we'll see it's it's an open right. question but yeah i mean it is weird like you said the way it's written it's written at, i mean the way i talk about it is, is like a Kierkegaardian parable mm-hmm. um which i guess makes me just sound smart but um <laughs> You know, like this, this idea, like all these philosophers kind of did in the 19th and then earlier, mainly in the, you know, the, the 16th and 17th century, where like they would do their philosophy through telling stories, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so you even have like Galileo who tells like a story that, that is, you know, like the book that he reveals that he yeah. thinks that the, that the earth revolves around the sun. It's actually like characters in a story that he's telling it, which is what got him in trouble is that he called the Pope simpleton. Like he gave <laughs> the Pope's question. Um, he put in the mouth of a character named Simpleton, which, you know, yeah. is probably not a good thing to do. Not know? a great I mean, move. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like when your senior pastor asks a question about youth ministry and then you write a blog post and the, the, uh, the foil, the, the, the dumb guy in it is, uh, the, your senior pastor. It's probably not a good move. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I've been kind of drawn to that just because I think it's, you know, I, I have a, such a commitment of trying to particularly in the youth ministry world, but just in the, in the con in, in ministry in general, like move theological reflection into to conversation. I, mm-hmm. I just think that's so important. And that's kind of been my mission for a while um, personally and in my scholarship, but it's really, it, it, I think you, I think for theology to live, you actually have to show it more than tell it. You know what I mean? And yeah. we're kind of in an era and we have been maybe for 50 to a hundred years where theology is really done by, by telling you not showing you yeah so uh probably being someone who was in youth ministry and who really cares about youth workers and talks to youth workers um and really just pastors in general 
know that storytelling is, is a very important thing. So try to tell it that way. So it is kind of, there are flashbacks, uh, which I did kind of think, have I been hit on the head? And do, have I been concussed to try to yeah. write the book this way? Yeah. And I always am like really insecure, not sure I'm a good enough writer to try to have these like narratives and stories. And so they don't sound like super cheesy. <laughs> um, and I think, I think I avoid, avoided the cheese, uh, the, the cheese level, but you know, people can tweet at me and, well, actually, no. I don't need I don't need to live <laughs> with, with your with your uh, with your hate, which may yeah. be legitimate. But um, Twitter's but kind yeah. of a cesspool of hate already. So it, uh, it is. Yeah. It, it is. It is a very um, soul crushing place to be. Yeah. Yeah. But so, I, yeah, I, I wrote it that way because it really was a journey. I mean, it, you know, to get to more substance of your question. I mean, um, having taught youth workers and a lot of uh, people doing MAs um, in youth ministry and just been around the church a ton. Uh, speaking to youth workers this is a big question, mm-hmm. and um, my sense was that it has been harder and harder to equate the youth pastor with the kind of curator of the youth group, or even to equate the youth group with youth ministry. That that's just has become a more difficult proposition, and um, I think a lot of youth workers feel like, well, whether whether it's explicit or implicit, they feel like it's my job to create a great youth group, and and I think in some parents kind of feel that way too. And especially maybe people even a generation older than these parents these days mm-hmm. kind of feel like youth ministry equals youth group, that they're the right. same kind of thing. And I just think there's been some pretty radical cultural changes that just make that not the case. And, and partly what the book is trying to do is help youth workers avoid just keep banging their head against the wall um, or, or even demonizing parents really for some of the decisions that they're making. So, yeah. um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, the story that's in the book didn't quite happen that way. You know, like I've turned it into like nine months of a journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's like the screenplay version of it. But this journey has been something I've been on and just uh, with students as well as just in the church, as well as a little church that I'm part of. And, um, and, and my wife is the pastor of like, these have been, these have been big questions. And so yeah. that was, uh, that was kind of what drew me into it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think to your point that you just made, I think, not only people in youth in youth ministry, but, but really ministry in general, go throughout it thinking, what is this for? What am I doing it for? Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, I think the stories that you tell, one, I don't, I don't think they're, they're cheesy, but even if they are, I think it makes the story more in, endearing because uh, people talk to themselves and think about, what's going on and I'm, I'm eating pizza and watching a dance party and, you know, making a analogy to someone clipping their nails on, on a plane, you know, like all these little things that you spell out makes it more, uh, relatable, uh, and just more authentic, which you speak to the age of authenticity in the book. Uh, and you know, um, I think this is, um, uh, a, a book and a project kind of, kind of, as, as you said, that it, you, you take the cultural and philosophical trends of parenting and how we find our identity and you meld it in and out of these stories and um, interviews that you have with parents, some who are churched, some who are not churched. Uh, Jay, this youth worker um, who uh, talks about how youth ministry is for joy. And um, the thing that uh, I kind of 
realized as I was reading the book was, you know, we have in the book of John, we have the I am statements. Jesus says, I am the door, uh, I'm the good shepherd. And I found myself being drawn to what I think you present our joy is, or joy, you know, joy is seen in this way statements. And I've highlighted them and, and uh, almost in a, I'm going to show my nerd cards here, uh, in a more positive note, uh, in the movie, The Dark Knight, uh, Heath Ledger's Joker, whenever he tells a story of his scars, he tells a different story every time. Mm. And I think it's a subtle but brilliant move to look into the psychosis of his character, but also he's telling true things that have impacted him. And every time you spell out joy or Jay does or or some other story, you say some of the same things, but it's a little different or it's totally different, but still under the same um, umbrella, uh, if you will. So um, I think that really stood out to me. And that goes along with how I kind of made the introduction of we kind of learn what joy is and we kind of peel back the onion ourselves as you're doing it on the pages. And I think that's really just kind of what draws people into this. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really enjoyable thing and it's a process. It's a dialogue. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And when we hit a dead end or hit the wall as a runner would do, um, it's easy to lose hope, um, to get pulled into depression or anxiety um, which is something in my own ministry that I've wrestled with um, to find my own worth and value in my work. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really, it's a really uh, great thing to see that people who are helping shape our youth ministry culture are just like us and we're going through the same process and we're better when we do it all together instead of trying to figure it out in our own little silos and have our resources and just try and use our own effort to make something good. But to realize that through our failures, we grow and we're transformed more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, which is kind of how you end the book, which I love that. Um, and so uh, one other thing that I wanted to point out, point out, which is what you said earlier about parents. Um, when I was in one of my youth ministry classes in seminary, I, realized how much a lot of youth workers don't like parents. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was kind of shocking because um, it's almost like parents were described as the enemy mm-hmm. um, as they're not letting me do my thing. Um, I know what's best for these students and um, I'm, trying, I'm trying to guide them and they get on to me because, you know, kind of like uh, someone that you mentioned in the book, they're not making the youth group, fun enough or they're not making it, you know, drawn in. So my teenagers are entertained, not even, you know, just being engaged, but entertained. Um, And uh, you know, uh, one of the main things that I learned uh, in my own ministry is how important family is to the overall uh, structure of being in youth group. Um, And you did mention it a few times in the book, uh, how, Youth ministry has grown to incorporate family overall within its scope. Youth and family pastor and other similar titles are what what you'll find in many churches. Um, And with our newest class of students, whenever they move up into the youth ministry, uh, I welcome them and their parents over a meal. Um, And the first thing I highlight with them is that if you break down all of our church and youth programming into hours, 
students will spend roughly six months in our ministry in the span of seven years. Hmm. So it is not up to me or our volunteers to hmm. spiritually raise and develop your kids. It's my main and first job to resource and equip you because as Deuteronomy 6 and a myriad of other passages say, you are the primary disciple makers of your kids. And so if we want a holistic, comprehensive learning at church and learning at home and growing, um, it needs to be me helping you. And then when they're here, I can reinforce hopefully what you're already going through at home. And then it can be an altogether movement. you know, and, but I do reinforce that involvement in our ministry will greatly benefit both them and their children. Um, and the conversations you had with three sets of parents in the book alongside cultural and philosophical trends led you to present the reason why parents don't really care about youth groups is, as strange as it may sound, because happiness is what they ultimately seek for their children. The happiness of students is rooted in how they work out their identity which is not only incredibly subjective, but requires constant affirmation of their thing, mm-hmm. um, which is what you laid out a lot in the book. And their thing is their passion, what helps define them. Uh, clubs, sports, academics seem to always contend with youth programming on the calendar. And when they do, youth programming is typically on the losing end of that scheduling choice. Mm-hmm. So Andy, what does modern youth ministry need to do in order to truly help and guide the spiritual growth of this next generation? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an, it, you set that up really well. And it is a really interesting conundrum that we have to face, I think, in the church and in youth ministry. Because you know, I think you're right. Like when you talked about your seminary class and how many, how many budding youth workers or yeah. present youth workers are like, yeah, I don't really like parents. Or mm-hmm. parents are, you know, or if you get, I have had many experiences where you like get youth workers honest, like, you know, you close the doors and, you yep. know, you, you, you just get that moment of real honesty. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll just confess like parents drive me crazy and it's, mm-hmm. it's not always like the young youth worker who's just shy of parents or just kind of wants to play video games with kids it's sometimes like veteran youth workers who are just That's like right. these people are pain in my butt you know i you know they're, they're they're you know no one would say this in any kind of even pseudo public kind of format but that yeah they're almost more trouble than they're worth you know um what I want to kind of frame for them, what I would want to frame for those people, what I would want to frame in this book is the kind of odd thing here is it feels like participation in the youth ministry, particularly the youth group, is somewhat eroding. Okay. But I, what I want to argue is that one of the reasons that that's eroding is not because we're dealing with, particularly in our middle class settings, um, worse parents, but right. better parents, that they're mm-hmm. actually more invested, more engaged in their kids' lives. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are deeper cultural forces at play. And so the kind of whole book really rests on to be able to get to this kind of sense of joy. It rests on the sense that kind of rests on this certain philosophical anthropology that says that all human beings have some deep kind of implicit, sometimes explicit, but for sure implicit sense of what a good life is. And unfortunately, when parents do the equation in their head of, uh, especially when they realize like you're, 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 their kid's a finite creature and there's only so many hours in a day. And particularly now on this Wednesday night, there's a conflict with the opening night of the drama that their kid has been in, or mm-hmm. they find out that the great violin teacher that they've been wanting to get lessons with for three years has an opening but it's only on Wednesday nights. And yeah. so now, now they have to make the decision, okay, do we 
basically not do faith formation or confirmation or youth group for the next eight months? Or do we say no to this really good thing, this, this, this thing, this activity that our kid likes, that we think will form them in the future, but that will ultimately, we think, shape them for a good life? So as hard as it is for us to face, I think culturally what's happened is all these other activities, these things I call the things, sports and, and test prep and choirs, you know, traveling choirs, chess club, whatever they might be. Mm-hmm. That parents do not explicitly, but implicitly run an equation in their head of what will help, what, which one of those activities will help their kids live a better life. Mm-hmm. And youth group just keeps falling down the list. And it is because they want their kid to be happy, but they want their kid, most definitely they want their kid to be happy. But they're also, I think parents are scared to death or feel very disempowered in how their kids will answer the question, who am I? And they do think if their kid is kind of screwed up on how they answer the question, who am I, or they don't feel satisfied with that answer, they can never be happy. So you want your kid to be happy, but you realize your kid has to be able to define in some way that feels good to them um, about who they are. But as a parent, especially in our age of authenticity, where a few generations ago, maybe you could just impose that or the culture would impose that for good or for ill. You know, like the example I often use, and maybe I used it in the book, is just like, you know, you watch the Breakfast Club for those of your listeners who are old enough yeah. to know that Johnny is money movie. I mean, it was a classic movie. I, I think I was like in, you know, I, I'm trying to not seem that old. I think I was in like <laughs> middle school when that was out, but nevertheless, I watched it many times. And what was so appealing about that show, about that movie, was that you basically had every identity you could be in detention mm-hmm. at the same time. So you had like, you know, eight identities you could be, which is a, you know, which is maybe underselling it, but nevertheless, it felt like there weren't that many identity options. But as you enter full flesh into this age of authenticity, as a, as a philosopher named Charles Taylor calls it, which has an ethic, and the ethic is no human being should tell another human being what it means for that human being to be human. In other words, every human being has a right to define for themselves what it means to be human. That's kind of the air we breathe. Well, then that means if you're 12, 13, 14, 15, that every identity you figure out is your own unique self, that has to be affirmed. Or... In other words, a parent can't impose, like, this is what you're going to be. So you have to, as a parent, it's almost like you're, you, you can't impose morals or values in some ways. You can't impose that definition, but you also are a good parent and you don't want to opt out of it, you know? So but one, of the one, one of the things you can do is help your kid have a lot of different experiences that can help them find out who they are. So maybe basketball helps them find out who they are. And that becomes even really important because basketball also gives other goods. Like it helps you learn to win or weren't learn to lose or you know how to work hard and and things like that so my point is what i think we've done poorly and it's not really our fault in youth ministry but what what has been a problem is we've tried to continue to equate the youth ministry we've tried to play the thing game mm-hmm. so we essentially youth ministry is the same as sports or as choir or as test prep or as as drama club it's it's equal with that and I guess what I want us to do is, is opt out of that and say, you know, at some level you can't, at some level it is a, a, a time commitment that you get dropped off at or whatever. So there's, there's a certain level where it's that. But I think what happens internally for the youth worker is that you look at it and say, I mean, I've had youth workers say this, like, well, if kids would get up at 4.30 in the morning to go to, to, to their swim practice before school, well, surely they should get up at four in the morning and read their Bible. 
and maybe they should, but my thing is like, if you're going to hold your breath, bro, you're, you're, you know, you're going to get lightheaded pretty quickly. Yep. Like, and there is it's just, just a whole nother cultural, the, the cultural conditions don't set it up so that 13 year old kids get up and read their Bible at four in the morning, but it does set it up that parents wake kids up, drive them, lose sleep to take their kids to swimming. And I think that actually, if we try not to play the, the thing game, we set ourselves up to have a deeper impact and a deeper theological impact. Um, because I don't actually think at the end of the day that identity is built just around your thing. And I tried to show that, like you referenced the parents I talked to, like these parents who were so into basketball. These were folks that didn't go to church at all. And they just, basketball was everything. And, you know, during the winter months, it was, you know, like six days a week basketball, at least two or three practices. Weekends were just filled with basketball. And they acted like basketball was just a choice amongst any. And they just wanted their kid to find their thing, to be involved in something. But the truth of the matter is that all their daughters chose to play basketball. And basketball wasn't just one thing amongst another thing. Because basketball was a rich narrative experience. Like the, the parents both played basketball growing up. They fell in love at a basketball camp. The, the mother's um, uh, uh, da- dad was like, coached 30 years of high school basketball team so to assume like a kid could pick lacrosse or basketball or or assume that a kid could decide to do a crafting class instead of basketball isn't quite how human beings work because we need deep narratives and stories to live out of that we have our identity inside of stories and i guess what i'm trying to get at here is that so often youth ministries like how can we be as attractive as hockey you know or or cheerleading or something Mm -hmm. Um, As opposed to saying, you know, what we actually provide parents and kids are deep narratives to live out of. And and actually a narrative we think is more profound than any, this idea of a God who becomes incarnate and takes on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ is crucified dead and and rises again. Where We think all of history is embedded in this person and, and um, you know, that it it began and it will end in, in, in his being. I mean, that's a pretty profound story, but it also, the, the, the church is historically just stories on top of stories and narratives on top of narratives. And that's what we fundamentally need as human beings. So this seems, you know, uh, it's a longer conversation, but I guess what I'm pushing youth workers to, to do is not fight to make your youth ministry shinier to attract more, you know, attention from parents or interest in parents and kids, but it's to really focus on the narrative, to really focus on the story. And to focus on kids' own story and how they will articulate the meaning of their own story next to the story of the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the gospel laid out. Um, I think it's very important to realize that it's done through stories. And I know um, that there's caution out there and concern about. Um, narrative theology is, is is if what you want to call it, and it's like it's too progressive. It's, it's watering down the significance of Jesus, his death and his resurrection and things like that. But if you look at the Bible overall, it's a meta narrative. It's best understood from Genesis to revelation. Now, obviously, you know, people call themselves new Testament Christians may focus in on Jesus, which obviously if you read the Bible, theologically, everything points to Jesus, but uh, yeah, narrative and story is so important. And you know, Donald Miller was an author for me that really kind of helped me point that out. And my favorite high school teacher was my junior year English teacher. 
And she really helped me understand just the power of narrative and where we can find ourselves in stories and why we read these books as more than just for a summer assignment or to cross off a classical work off our list. It's to help us understand how we live our own lives and the characters and the setting and why it matters for us to um, not only get to know, but really dive into other people's stories and how those become ours. And yeah, I, I loved how you weave that in with the thought of identity, right? That's the classic teenager question, who am I? And, um, you know, in this drawn out period where adolescence has extended and how, um, you know, uh, students are getting their driver's license later. Um, they don't really care about getting a, a, a job. Um, I did a, a research article for U Specialties for 2019, and I found that the summer of 2019 was the lowest rate of student employment since the late 60s. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And, um, and then you, of course, look at the rates of depression and anxiety mm-hmm. and how a lot of that, even for adults, started in 2007, and that's when the iPhone came out. So you have a a really causal relationship with technology and trying to find out who we are and all of the options for identity, kind of as you mentioned, and um, it can become overwhelming. And I'm certainly um, among those who probably approached faith as trying to give it to students as an asset, kind of like you mentioned uh, in the book, and not the thing, right? Mm -hmm. And it's an abstract thing, but it's really the point of what Martin Luther was getting at. And what does that mean uh, to be hidden in Christ, to die to yourself, and it's tied into your being and who you are as as a collection of stories. And when you meet other stories, they become part of yours. And that's how you have a, a community that's authentic, right? And so Um, it's very complex, but when you line it up and you think about how we think about ourselves and our own story, and then how we were made in the image of God and to see fully God and fully man, Jesus interacting with others and where he points them to with humility and grace and mercy. He's, but he also gets sad. He gets angry. Right. And Mm -hmm. so um, kind of like I mentioned at the beginning where I could see myself in some of those personal stories and analogies that, that you made. I think the point of living the Christian life is not just to say, well, here's the standard way up here of Jesus. And we need to try and meet that. We, kn- we know that we're going to fall short, but we can keep shooting air balls, if you will, to keep on the basketball analogy. Um, but really, there's grace and there's growth in our failure. And if growth really only comes through adversity and pain, um, kind of like the, those two stories that were shared in the hospital waiting room, which were like punched in the gut, like, wow, wow. Right. Uh, all of us have stories in our own lives, people that we know who have gone through something. And when they're able to uh, tie that back to who they are in Christ, then that's uh, a better witness than any sermon, than any program for outreach and all of that, because it's relational. It's uh, shared in trust with the relationship that you've built. It's not to bash you over the head. And it's not just to kind of stand on a uh, soapbox for apologetics. It's like, this is who I am. This is part of my story. Yeah. Um, there was a theologian that uh, I got to meet with uh, he wrote um, the theology book 
the for my theology 101 class in, in seminary, and I'm really embarrassed because I can't think of his name. Uh, he's an he's an Oxford guy, um, but he's written several books on apologetics, and he's written from different perspectives. And he told me, uh, well, his his latest book um, that's either coming out or has just come out is apologetics from a narrative standpoint. Mm. And I asked him why. Um, did you do it from a narrative standpoint? And he told me, um, when you share your story, you're not just sharing events, you're sharing who you are. And when you share your story, um, people can't help but be taken in by your story and they can see how their, how your story can become their own. Mm-hmm. And that really, uh, popped up, uh, in my head as I was reading toward the end yeah. of your book on how our stories cross. Yep over one another. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, uh, has, has this kind of, uh, thought about stories and how that's the power of our identity. Has that been something that you've really kind of honed in on and learned in this journey of writing this book or has it been something that you've thought about and now you're able to place it once you did mm. this book? Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that it's been, yeah, it's something that's been developing. I mean, it, it's, it's been built off some other ideas, but yeah, I mean, um, I think in this book is probably the most directly I've talked about the importance of narrative as it, as it relates to, um, to identity. And I, I was really convinced as, as others have talked about the kind of constitution of identity around narrative about when you think of someone being in an identity crisis, what actually happens is that the stories that they've been living out of um, no longer work for them. And particularly, in, in, you know, I, I tried to hold this thread throughout the whole book is that, I, you know, there, there's sometimes as a misconception, I think, that when we're talking about stories, you're just kind of talking about generic stories, you know, like, uh, I'll, I'll tell a story or, you know, it's like a, a stand-up bit or something, you know, that you know, the point is to get to some punchline. Yeah. But really what's encompassed in our stories is our sense of what is good and what makes life good. And so our, our identities are both duly formed and knit together in stories, but those stories have to have a direction towards what's good. And so when you're in an identity crisis, the stories you've been living out of that you have given value to that make your life good, all of a sudden don't work anymore. You know, that's like the kind of classic movie example is you're in love with somebody and then you come home, you think everything's great. And then, you know, um, this really dates you, but you get the, the dear John letter or whatever, you, you, <laughs> you know, the, 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 your, your spouse or whatever tells you that they've been having an affair to get really dark or something. But you can see people go through an identity crisis because they've been thinking part of what makes my life good is this marriage and this commitment I have to this other person. And and there's a story there about who they are and what this and how they, they exist inside this relationship. And then they find out that the story they have isn't true at all. It doesn't correlate with reality. And all of a sudden they're thrown You'll often hear people when they go through situations like that, they'll say, well, who am I? I mean, an example of this is kids who are very surprised by the divorce of their parents mm-hmm. uh, and had no idea because they were living out of a certain narrative of how their family was and, and their family wasn't perfect, but it was good. At least, you know, some kids have that assumption. And then all of a sudden they're taken to the IHOP and sit, sit, sit down for <laughs> pancakes and says, well, dad's moving out or, you know, dad is starting a new family with someone else. And, and, and often the kid will say, or even sometimes not even kids, somebody in their mid twenties will say, "I don't even know who I am now," uh, because these stories that were formulating their identity are no longer there. So, but what's really powerful about that, I think, in, in context of the Christian um, commitment, is that that 
once you once you have a God who arrives to Israel, once you have a God who shows up in time and in space, that the, that both the Jewish and Christian Christian commitment isn't that you know that we have dreams or take you know some kind of herb and then we have these like weird you know like uh, Breaking Bad fly on the wall. There you uh, go. Kind of, you know, we don't we don't have it's not that the, the depth of the Christian story and the, and the, the Jewish story isn't built on those kind of otherworldly um, kind of uh, psychedelic experiences. It's actually built on concrete historical encounters with a living God. Mm -hmm. And this God comes to us as a person. In other words, comes to us saying our name and and giving us a name. And then ultimately, of course, in the depth of the Christian story comes embodied and fleshed in the person of Jesus Christ. And whenever you encounter a person, you need a story to make sense of that. so God is not God can't be a God can't be reduced to a story necessarily, but to encounter the personhood of God, um, whether as Yahweh or coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ, means that we only can testify to that by telling the story, mm-hmm. and um, we can only narrate that experience because I did not know the Lord was in this place, and you know God showed up. Um, I would never have thought that the one crucified outside of Jerusalem is, is the fullness of God. I have to narrate and tell that story. And I guess my, my point ultimately is what youth ministry needs to be for is exposing young people to that story. But what, how it has to be exposed is through the persons of others in the community. So, you know, this is an old Christian word, but it's such an important one is there has to be kind of sense of testimony here. And what we're really trying to do in youth ministry is expose young people to hear the narratives, the stories of other others before them in the faith, um, narrating why this is important to them, and particularly, it's not even narrating why it's important. Like I like this, and I, you know, I like Jesus. I like ice cream, and not, not in that way, but I mean, in the way of I've, in some way, I've encountered the living Jesus Christ. Um, and we don't always have direct encounters of the living Jesus Christ. We have some story that becomes a direct encounter. And that's the power of stories. It can kind of be transferred to people. And in many ways, that's how I see Paul's church. Is like Paul's church is like, I had this experience of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Not mm-hmm. all of you have had a similar experience. There's a couple maybe who have or have had some somewhat. But you can believe through my story. And as we dwell in this story and as we participate in each other's lives and try to make sense of it and discern really how it transitions what is good. You know, I think that's the big breakthrough, particularly for Paul, is that the what is good and what is a good life completely transitioned and switched because of his experience with the resurrected Jesus Christ, where now he realizes that weakness is good, not power. Right, right. Death brings forth life, you know, that all of these backward things especially that he lays out in in the in the corinthians texts come mm-hmm. out of this very different way in that it, that a good life now is in the shape of the cross um not say in the shape of empire or even the shape depending on how you read paul but not even in the shape really of the law it comes mm-hmm. in in the shape of the grace of the person of jesus christ who showed up to paul and said saul saul why are you persecuting me and yeah. i think that's the point of youth ministry is to try to bring kids before these persons in the faith who are in, in doubt and in fear and in hope and in longing and suffering and in joy are trying to live out this Christian story and are, um, and to ask young people to listen and then eventually share their own story. Yeah. I love that. Uh, the idea of uh, when Paul shares, you know, your power is made perfect in my weakness. Mm-hmm. And I think in community, when you have that, when you, 
realize that all together and you all share your weakness, almost like that uh, scenario uh, you, you painted of everyone in the waiting room kind of sharing their stories. Um, it helps you to realize how in this moment, God met me when I wasn't enough, when I was a failure, uh, when I screwed up. Uh, when I was pushing him away because I thought I could do it on my own or I was angry at him and I thought I knew better, any of those things. And for him to have the love and mercy and grace to reach out to us um, and to be able to show us how now that you're in a good place of weakness, now you can listen and now I can show you what you have and it's life in me and I'm going to use you and your story and Yes, when we have big, uh, powerful, and and sad stories, they stay with us. Um, but then we kind of grow, not just stay in them and be stagnant, but we grow out of that because that is part of what God has used to mold us. And if we're constantly being transformed into the likeness of, of Jesus Christ, then, then, you know, he showed Thomas his scars, right? And not not to be too cheesy with that analogy my myself, but you know, the scars and the bruises and everything else, like I think Jesus still has those scars. And I think when we see those and we think about our own stories, they're reminders of God's grace mm-hmm. and how he's not um, absent. He is present. And when we can share that w- with each other and tell that, whether it's students and adults, um, or parents and their children or teenagers and and their peers, you know, it's through that story that we realize um, this is who I am. This is what I've experienced. And this is how God is using that for my good. However, he defines good, not me and for his glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the joyous statements that I kind of latched onto uh, was kind of when you first had that interaction and revelation with uh, Jay is uh, joy is receiving God's gifts and changing from or because of them, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a process and mm-hmm. happiness is a feeling that's fleeting. And if you base everything on happiness, then if you're not happy all the time, then, then that shows that it's a failure and it mm-hmm. can't be the concept that we base our identity on. It has to be bigger than that. And that's why we can be joyful even through hard times. One of the values of our church is joy in suffering. Yeah. Um, and we got to walk through, we've, we've walked through several hard things with families. And one of them, there was a youth dad who was diagnosed with ALS. He was in his early forties. Um, and for those two years from the diagnosis and, and to the day of his diagnosis, actually, he passed away. Um, and I told the students, they, they wanted to do something. Their daughter was in our youth group and they wanted to throw like a, a pizza party for or do whatever. And I'm like, that's, that's great. Like, I love the sentiment, but as I kind of mentioned earlier with ministry, like this isn't going to be a sprint. This is going to be walking with them before and whenever it happens, even after he is gone. And so what's that going to look like? How are we going to walk with them? And it's been such a powerful testimony of our church, not just our students, but how our church has rallied around their their family. And it's really given me like the most crystal clear, tangible picture of how you can actually have joy in the midst of, you know, heart wrenching, crushing pain. Um, and it doesn't, um, take the pain and say, well, the pain really isn't that bad. In fact, because it's so bad, it shows how the joy of life in Christ and the community is actually that great. 
Right. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so Andy, to uh, wrap up, um, you know, you're a professor, you're a researcher, speaker, and author. So you've probably either consciously or subconsciously extrapolated the next decade or two of the youth ministry landscape, uh, if you will. So what are your opinions or predictions on what those who work with students uh, should expect maybe in the, in the coming years? Yeah, well, I mean, I would have had um, some real good um, ideas. Well, I would, I, whether they were right or not, I would have confidently said four months ago, I think this is what's going to happen now, like coming out of a pandemic, man, your guess is as good as mine. I don't, you know, I don't know what's going to happen or what's, what will happen with the economy, what will happen. You know, there's, there's, there's so many things that, that could potentially happen. Right. But I think, I think I, my guess is that I, I would hope, let me put it that way. What I hope we do going into the future is that um, we will find ways to make the youth ministry a little bit more porous. And what I mean by that is it, I tried to kind of show that in the book is that there'd be more opportunities for youth ministry to be connected with more adults and maybe even more children within the church. And that we're, we're kind of walking together more that maybe coming out of the pandemic, we can realize that there are reasons to cohort solidly cohort young people up. And we should do that sometimes but it's been kind of the bias of the youth group from an older time of youth ministry that you just keep cohorting them up, cohorting them up twice a week, at least once a week. And that's what matters. And I think maybe coming out of this, what we're going to realize is that we just, we need more interaction. We still need it. We still need a youth worker. We still need a youth pastor that's advocating for young people, but uh, her job or his job is really to, to invite others to narrate these stories, to walk alongside young people to find ways to actually prophetically ask young people to really narrate why these other things are so involved in are good and wh- what's the story behind them. But yeah. then also maybe when they are legitimately um, finding ways to get out in the world with them and to participate with them instead of just, you know, being frustrated that they're not at our event or our program. And so I don't think there's any reason ever to think like, programs need to be thrown in the garbage can or that programs need to be burned and you know thrown off a bridge or something but uh but maybe we need to be a little looser with our programs and remember what matters here is encounters with persons and and seeking for the the living god um out in the world and inside the stories that we share as persons in in community and encounter so but we'll see man yeah i you know i think it's I think it's okay for some programs to be thrown off a cliff. Uh, I think they become. <laughs> well, I wanted you to say that. I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they become sacred cows um, for a lot of people. And this is the way we always done it, or this has been so successful. And if there's something that's maybe not as numbers successful, but more spiritually healthy, successful, mm-hmm. it's hard to take that away. But, you know, I think that's why we're called to have good judgment and wisdom and, discernment and asking parents and other people on staff, like, what do you think about this? It's been great, but do you think it's taking us toward a direction that's not where authentic growth is happening? You know, well, Andy, uh, thank you again so much for joining me. Uh, I hope this isn't the last time that we're able to converse with one another. Um, If people are looking for ways that they can find this book, the end of youth ministry or your other books, um, where can they find that information about what you're doing in youth ministry? Yeah. Um, obviously they can find the book on Amazon. Is it 
just controls our lives. That's um, right. But uh, yeah, you can. I have a web a website that's just andrewroot.org. org, yeah. and then um, yeah, I guess you can find me on Twitter though. Like we said, I don't know if it was before we started or, or during this conversation. That yeah, Twitter's a set, the cesspool. That's right. cesspool. <laughs> but um, I'm there too. I'm waiting in 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 that that uh, crazy place. So. Uh, but yeah, probably website. You can find stuff about books and other things like that. So, but yeah, Jeff, thanks for having me on. It's been great to talk with you. Thanks, Ben. That concludes today's episode. Thanks again to Dr. Andrew Root for joining me. I encourage you to check out his website and his books, especially The End of Youth Ministry. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to a podcast now that we are finally on all major platforms. You can also hear us on Eternity Ready Radio every Monday night at 6 Central. I encourage you to share this episode with youth workers, pastors, parents, and anyone who invests in the next generation. We should seek the joy of knowing Christ and use that to form our identity And as you heard from Andy, and if you've already read the book, you know that this happens better together in community. We need each other. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, adios.